Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello team, I'm Dom Harvey. Welcome to my podcast, Runners Only. What you're listening to here is the Summer Series. Now, I've got to be completely transparent with you. Summer Series is a fancy name. It's basically a bullshit name. What you're about to listen to is a recap episode. It has been a massive year since the podcast launched way back in February 2022. Since then, there's been a total of 50 full-length episodes of Runners Only with 50 incredible New Zealanders, some of them famous, some of them household names, some of them people you've never heard of that just have fascinating stories. And my guess is not many people have listened to all of them. In fact, maybe you're here for the very first time, and if you are, welcome. So what I've done is I've got some highlights of each of these guests who so generously gave up some of their time, and I've put them together sort of as like a highlight or recap episode. Now what I do, before I go into the snippet of each guest, I'll say who they were and what episode they were on. So if you like the sound of them and you haven't heard that interview, you can go back and find it at ease in your own time. All right, let's get into it. Summer Series Part 2. From Episode 19 back in May 2022, Joseph Parker. There's one thing, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, and, and that's fine. Um, last year, there was some stuff that came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you want to, I, I, I remember hearing it at the time, it was like, um, something to do with like money laundering or some yeah, yeah, shit. Yeah. Did, did you want to talk about that? You don't want to talk about that? Not really. No. Because it would just open up more things. Yeah, But yeah. the only thing I could say about it is that, they, listen, it was the, they've done, they've done all the investigation, there was nothing on me. Yeah. And they still released my name. Yeah. For what purpose? Mm. Released it for what purpose? I don't know, because there was nothing on me. Yeah. It was all made up. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I haven't done Absolutely. any Absolutely. Yeah. I haven't done anything that's um I haven't done anything that's against the law. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've I, yeah, we've we've all got regrets and um, you know, anyone that's you know, anyone that says they're perfect is full of shit. I'm not perfect, far from yeah. it. But yeah. I but being associated with people doesn't mean that you're doing stuff or yeah. you you've done this and whatever they said about me. Yeah, because if listen, if it was all true, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be locked up. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I, I must admit, when when that stuff before that stuff came out, um, being in media, you know, you hear whispers. Yeah, that's everyone. That's, it, was, it was the worst kept secret. Yeah, yeah. I, I was really surprised. I said, I, I I consider Joseph a friend, and I know him pretty well, and it just doesn't sound like him. It, it's the worst. It was the worst kept secret at the time. Everyone knew about it, but no one said anything about it. And then when it was released. I was just like, oh. I was overseas at the time. I was in Ireland Ooh. training with Andy Lee. That must have been so. Oh, that must have been so, when. So, th- so this was going on for years. Like you were fighting. This was to keep going him. on for since 2017. That must have been so hard for you and your family. Oh, listen. The hard part is just knowing there's something there, but it's just behind. It's just like at the back of your head. Ooh. But you're fighting and you're you know having family time and you know doing a lot of things. But there's always something just lurking in the back. Mm. But when it released, it was, I'm happy now that it's out there now because there's nothing bothering me anymore. Isn't that, yeah, no, because I'm, I'm guessing you went and caught yourself, but lawyers were in there yeah, trying yeah, to keep, you, keep your name suppressed. Well, that just seems seems mean and pointless that your name was released when there's no charges or anything like oh, that. Yeah, that's what like, I does think. That, does that make you angry? No, you just, listen, if you're angry, you're wasting your energy. Mm. 
you just got to accept it. And I've accepted it. I've accepted what happened. And I'm happy. I'm happy that it's gone now and it's in the past and I've, I'm able to move on and just focus on what's in front of me mm. what, and what's important. Family, career, and just doing the best I can in everything I do. Yeah. <coughs> Stressful few years, though. Oh, yeah. um, but it's, I, I don't think it's um, even one of those things that, that you know, d- defines you or is part of the, um, you know, the the Joe Parker legacy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I put on Instagram yesterday um, that I'm meeting you today and we're having a chat. Any questions? And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to sit here moderating them because people are going to bring this up. Not one person did. Oh, that's good. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks, team. <laughs> so we'll get to those questions in a second. But, um, yeah, did part of this come up because of your friendship with Manu? Manu Vatavai? No. Or was no, it that was totally no. separate. No. Right. It was just being associated with, with yeah. people. Yeah. Association. But it doesn't, yeah, like I said, knowing someone doesn't mean you're doing what they're doing. From episode 20, two raw sisters, Rosa and Margot Flanagan. With two raw sisters, like people expect certain things from you and you know like you might get a shit couple of shit messages on instagram it's not letting that get to you and you know stuff like that that you just what sort of shit messages could people have for you and your sister oh, yeah. what are we talking about here <laughs> oh you know there's just those people Margo, out there can you think of anything? <laughs> i can but i'm afraid if i say it pe- these people again will be offended oh no 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 share do share <laughs> I'm not, not going to listen to a podcast called Runners Only. Okay, well, you'll get the hate mail, not us. Okay. We were making food to go away, and we were like, oh, Invercargill, you know, there's not many good places to eat. Yeah. And these people yeah, were yeah. like, oh, my God, I can't believe you say that. Go fuck each other and all this. And I'm like, chill the F out. Oh, oh that's all right. That's all right. They're just sticking up for the air. Sticking up for the air. People in Invercargill are very <laughs> protective they of are. their town. They are. I, I remember <laughs> I, I was in, the first time I went to Invercargill, I, I um, went to a gym and had a session. Then I went to um, Pack and Save or Woolworths or whatever. Yeah. To, and I was looking for like a, like a protein bar. Mm. I said to the lady at the checkout, after I looked for a while, I said, do you have protein bars here? And she goes, you've got more rows over there. <laughs> God. But no, we love Invercargill. Yeah, yeah, we do yeah. love it. But it's just, yeah, it's quite funny what we get People sometimes. They are very are sensitive. sensitive. And, and, gosh, you've got to be aware of what you say And sometimes. you guys were wrong. There are plenty of good places to it. There's Subway, there's yes. Peter Pit, there's... <laughs> Pizza Hut, McDonald's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lots of fried we, places. <laughs> we just weren't seeing those. Yeah. We need um, to open our eyes more. From episode 21, former All Black, Zach Guilford. Have you got these things still, like the Commonwealth Games gold medal? And no, the I actually, Cup? you know, through my gambling addiction, I guess, um, you know, no, sold a lot of them. Sold oh, you're a lot joking. Of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, gutted with that. Um, <sighs> such a, yeah, a shit path that addiction took me down, you know, and that, those are the moments that really, I guess, hit hard. Mm. Um, How much do you sell a what I sell winner's a, medal for? I think it was like two grand or something, but just at this stage in life where I was so caught up in addiction – and couldn't see a way out that, you know, gambling and finding peace through addiction was the only way forward. And um, the first time I've told, you know, the media anything like this, but um, not that you're the media, it's a podcast, but, um, you know, to open up about it is, you know, first for me and something that I never thought I'd open up on. That's mm. yeah. oh, very brave of you to do that. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Um, no, I, I yeah. really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. that's – um. so who, who's got them? Is there any way you can buy them uh, back? Like, they, they mean – this is this is the thing. Like they mean something to you. They don't mean anything to anyone else. No, they don't. But you know, it's just I guess scars of my previous life that I, mm. that I have to carry. But I'm in the process of process of healing those. Um, I know who they've gone to, and I know they've been taken good care of. Right. But 
you know, it's just, you know, that whole grief stage post addiction is what I'm going through now. Yeah. And I think, you know, honesty is a big part of that, part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So same fate to all your all black jerseys and every um, sort of bit of memorabilia? No, no, not every bit. Oh. You know, I've got um, my first jersey that won't leave mum's wall at home. Yeah, cool. Um, the Wales one. Um, second one's on my uncle's uncle's wall. So I got the first two sort of firmly plastered on the wall so they mm. can't go anywhere. But yeah, I guess, you know, I guess reflecting on a bit of that, you know, there's that hurt there, but um, it's all part of the process post-addiction yeah absolutely absolutely and it it's not a healthy space to be beating yourself up too much hey like you have to try and like draw a line in the sand and move on I guess yeah I mean yeah like when I talk to people now and I guess explain you know a bit deeper about my addiction and where it took me um like shit I can't believe that you know Mm. you seem in good in such good spirits and I'm like well yeah it's just yeah, recovery is a lot better place yeah. to be than full swing addiction where you're just trying to find peace where no peace can be found. Yeah. From episode 22, Harriet Kane. Did he, you propose to him or did he propose to you? No, he repro- proposed to did me. Did you know it was coming? How long have you been seeing each other no. at that point? A um, couple of years, a few years? Yeah, I think about three years. Right. But yeah, he proposed to me. Um, we were on a, a trip away in Rotorua at a lodge there. and you still at this point completely in the dark, oh, totally yeah. blind. yeah. Were, was he acting funny or anything? Like, no. was he nervous? Like, could you you couldn't sense? Because no. a lot of lot, lot of friends that got engaged said to me, "Oh, they could tell something was up." No, no, I he wasn't. Tell, off. No. Yeah, yeah. Just that he had received his phone call that he said was like seemed really worrying to me because it was from my dad, but he didn't say what it was about. And I was like, "Oh God, can you just tell me now?" He said, "I can tell you later, but not now." And I thought, That's "Why can't you just tell me now? What's the difference?" <laughs> And he just, I keep bringing it up. He, 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 well, he could have just made something up on this. I know. Well, I'm not good at thinking on freaked, this. <laughs> freaked out, I think. Yeah, and he attached this ring to the fishing line, which I thought was, yeah, anyway, he attached this, he got it off an idea of a friend, I think. Attached it to a, and then went, put it in this gushing water, and then said to me, oh, would you like to drink the water out? It's fresh, it's so nice. And I said, no thanks. He said, come on, drink the water. So I put my head down and he dangled the ring, hoping, oh, surely she can see it. But the water was just gushing so fast, I couldn't see anything. And then he popped, brought it up right in front of my eyes, and there it was. <laughs> That's the most random idea ever. Uh-huh. And That's... what's even more scary is the fact that I said, did you trust your knots? Because oh, yeah, that, that could have been is... disaster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and he well, said, yeah, yeah I trusted my knots. I was like, oh. Def, definitely a male friend that gave him that idea, I reckon. Eh? Yeah. Guys are weird. Like a, a guy suggests that to another guy, and the other guy goes, "Yeah, that's a great idea. That's really romantic." Imagine if he pulled the string up, and he's like, "Shit, oh, where's the ring? <laughs> what am I going to do on? here?" <laughs> oh, so what was the, what was the thing about your dad? Oh, so that was that. He just asked dad if um, had permission to marry his daughter, and he just asked on the. On that day. Oh, so you like flick your dad a text or whatever, and your dad must have like called and. Yeah, yeah, right. I guess. Oh, so. that's nice and traditional. That could have, good oh, Jesus, that could have messed up his whole, his whole oh, plan though. Plan. Why didn't you do that in advance? I know. He was doing it with me there when I could have literally <laughs> came outside. Oh my gosh. From episode twenty-three, mental health advocate, comedian, and New Zealander of the year, Mike King. The room started getting smaller, and yeah. you know, and yeah. the the the. the the cost of the coke was getting higher and higher and higher, <laughs> and I, you know, and I was, you know, when you're worrying about finances, you end up being an asshole. Mm. 
the fucking newsboy thing started, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. So now that you bring that, like most people wouldn't wouldn't remember that, but um, so uh, there was a sketch on like eating media lunch or yeah. one of the one of the and, newsboy and that show shows. wasn't fucking rating at all. Right, there was no. Yeah, it was rating. a niche. It was a niche yeah. sort of show, not a mainstream 10, show. Yeah, it was on a ten thirty at night, and there was a uh, a dog that was Mike King, and he was snorting fucking or smoking pee or something, and of course I was. But, of course, I went into denial saying, how fucking dare you? Like, you've crossed the line. Yeah, so you left a voicemail message saying... You, uh, you, you, no, I you, left it on a mate's phone. Right. I left... You tell your fucked up friend <laughs> that he's fucking with the wrong guy. Who the... But for, for me, right, I'm old yeah. school. Yeah. I'm old school. Yeah. You don't knock on people, you know. You just fucking... Don't, you do the lag, you know. So, mm. I, But, you know, these new kids, they don't give a fuck. So he passed it on to uh, Jeremy Wells, and Jeremy posted it up. And at the, like uh, you know, I was it was, big, it was a big deal at the time. Well, here's my fucking phone number. Call me, can yeah, you know. And I put my phone number on there, and he fucking he didn't take the phone number off, and he broadcasted it, mm. and that basically launched his career. Mm. You know, and you know, if I'm being honest, I'm still a little resentful of that. Really? You know? yeah. yeah. The inner critic and the voice of reason are the two things, two constant in every human's life, right? But the voice of – so the inner critic used to keep us safe because if you didn't have an inner critic, if you didn't have this doubt, you'd walk up, oh, there's a lovely dinosaur. Holy <laughs> shit, it's eating me, right? So it used to – it warned you of yeah, danger, yeah, right? Yeah. But when there is no danger, it turns on you mm. and it makes things dangerous. So the inner critic should be 30-70. 30% inner critic, 70% voice of reason. I can tell you now factually that the inner critic controls 95% of our life and only 5% is the voice of reason. The voice of reason has quieted down because we're all riddled with self-doubt and we're all seeing this perfection and we think it's only us. 80% of suicidal kids never ask for help and the reason they never ask for help is because they're worried about what society's going to think, say, or do, and they're worried about disappointing their parents. So, four things. They're worried about what everyone's going to think, say, or do, and they're worried about disappointing people. What's our message to those kids? Hey, if you're in trouble, reach out and ask for help. That's an oxymoron. That's stupid. Why do we continue to put pressure on our most vulnerable to make the first move? Yeah, that's, it's funny you bring that up because that's something I've always thought. It's like everyone says, "Hey, if you ever need to reach out, just call me anytime, day or night." But that's, put, that's putting the onus on the sick oh, person. Yeah, that's right. Why do we? You know what the question needs to be is: everyone needs to go home, look in the mirror, and ask yourself, "What are you doing to make it easy for your friends and kids?" To ask for help. If you haven't had a mate come to you in the last six months crying and talking about his feelings, not my kids are assholes and ungrateful shits and my wife's a bitch, actually talking about feelings. If you haven't had a kid come to you and talk about their feelings, you're the problem. And not because you're a bad person, but you're just someone that I feel I can't talk to because you're too perfect. Mm. Making yourself available is making yourself vulnerable. Yeah. Sharing. From episode 25, Josh Komen, two-time leukemia survivor and just all-round good bloke. I got given 10 to 30% odds of my cancer. I had So I got put in the poor prognosis bracket. It was never terminal. Yeah. 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 
10 to 30 percent's not great though. Not great, but um, I thought, oh, I'll trust the doctors. They know what they're doing. Yeah. I've got no idea. So I said, oh, I'll just sit here and take what they've got. It's a bit of chemo. Maybe it's just like an ice pack on my ankle. It'll heal. That's my mentality, but I didn't understand what chemotherapy was going to do to me. Yeah, what does it do to you? Oh, it stripped me apart. First round of chemo, <laughs> I, was, I was about to understand what real pain was. First round, my stomach lining got stripped away and it just shrunk to the size of a walnut, and I was in hysteric pain that first week. And the nurse on, she was an older nurse, she was about to retire, and she was coming in with big boluses of morphine injecting me into the stomach. And I just started screaming, I don't want your fucking morphine. Just, you know, it was not me. I don't swear. It was just not me. And I'm having all these things coming out. And I actually wrote her an apology letter. And she actually came up to me the next day. And she goes, don't worry, love. I've had way worse than that. Mm. Some stuff goes on in here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably worth um, highlighting at this point. Um, so you're, you're an 800 meter runner, so you're used to putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. So I'm guessing you've got quite a high pain tolerance. So when you say it's fucking painful, it's it's fucking painful. It was terrible. Yeah, I, I hadn't I hadn't um, physically experienced that bad pain. That, that, yeah, I love that good pain. You know, going out, getting a load of firewood, lifting it on, sweat running down my face. You know that that um, feeling of it's like a meditative freedom, running, pushing myself. I mm. loved it because I knew it would end some stage. I didn't know when this pain would end. I had no idea. Mm. So was it just continuous? Yeah, it just it just lingered. So I knew I was. That was my first round of chemo, and then I'd have to have five more rounds. <sighs> That's just relentless. And then I had I had the leukemic cells in my central nervous system, so I had to have these. Lumbar punches, intrathecal chemo into my central nervous system. What's that like? Lumbar punch? That's like a big needle in your yeah, back. Yeah, so it's a big needle into my um, spinal cord, and they inject it in there to um, mop up the leukemic cells within my central nervous system. And then I also had to have these bone marrow aspirins once a month to understand what the cancer was doing, because the cancer was derived from my hemopoietic stem cells, these stem cells that live in our bone marrow that mm. basically create our immune system. Yeah. So they had to suck out a bit of bone in my hip through this big needle, and it was. <laughs> It was just painful. I was on the nitrous oxide gas. Oh, the NOS. Yeah. yeah, how good. Loved it, mate. Loved it. And I was just doing it to pass out. I'd just be sucking hard on it and like just zap this needle in. But I had this really bad experience with it. It didn't work and the doctor just mucked it up. It took him four goes to get it, to suck this bit of bone out. So it was just this Curio. continuous cascading of physical demeaning pain. For how long does that last for? So the, the treatment protocol for that first eight months was a month in isolation, locked in isolation. I'd have a week to 10 days of chemo, depending on what the dose was. When you say in isolation, what, is, what does that mean exactly? So basically a little room, maybe a quarter the size of this with a little kitchenette. Okay. And there's a double ventricle door, ear pressure door. So only the nurses and family were allowed in and some friends now and then. So it's a very small room with a bed, you drip, you, you line, and a little kitchenette where you could um, cook some toast or, or get a bottle of water. And it's literally isolation. Literally no isolation. Yeah. You're, you're locked in a room by yourself. But I had a view, beautiful view of the park, Hagley right. Park next door, which um, kept me sane. Right. Yeah, because I'm guessing for a, like a fit, active dude in his 20s, that must have just been like mentally like torturous. It was, and that was the hardest part about it. And when I talk about real pain, that was the compounding pain with that physical pain, and then I had that mental pain. My whole life got taken away, and... I basically was in despair. I disconnected myself from everyone because I thought my diagnosis was killing everyone around me because everyone was so sad, and I thought I've, I've done something bad to everybody else. Um, Why did you think that? Because everyone was so sad, Dom. I thought I'm, yeah, but it's not. I, 
it's 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 like you know you can't you can't hold any uh, no. like guilt or shame about that. Like no, at uh, the time, I did though, yeah. because I was a man. I was supposed to be helping other people, and that's what I thought because I always helped out other people. That's who I was, and I just didn't. I just didn't like seeing my mum in such distraught seeing me, and I didn't know how to handle it. And I looked at myself. Once you see your physical change in the mirror, and <laughs> and you saw yourself from from who. You, from who you used to be, you know, you fit, strong and healthy, and that's what you loved, working outside all the time, and you're locked in an isolation room with your own thoughts, and I didn't know how to control it, mm. I just didn't know how to control it, I really didn't, I didn't even know how to talk to people, I didn't want to talk to people, I didn't even know the words to say, hey, can you help me, so what I did, I thought, jeepers, when I was out, <sighs> sorry mate, I thought, I can't control these thoughts, I can't control this cancer. The only way I can end this is taking my life, so I really thought about it. And I was up on this balcony, and... Sorry, I'll get through this. That's all right. Take your time. And I just couldn't contain it, Dom. And I put a leg over, and I thought, all right, this would be a good way to go because I couldn't control anything. Maybe I could control my situation by making a choice. And in that moment... As I was thinking about it, this bit of wind hit the right-hand side of my face, and I still feel it vividly, and I turned around and I saw my mother's cup of tea. <laughs> and I saw her a cup of tea. It just hit me in the heart, you know. It hit me there. And I said to myself, I can't put the pain I'm feeling inside my mum. I just can't do that. It would be worse. It would be worse for her than for me, what I'm going through right now. So I, I stood away, and I said, oh, I've got to get some help, mate. Yeah, desperately. I had to get some help. And this was using my strength, mate. <sighs> this was me using my strength now. So luckily in New Zealand, we have amazing foundations, and there was a canteen. Her name was Sarah, and I said, listen, I need to get some real help. Can you get me a psychologist? And she got a psychologist on board, and... Managed to be able to have some a bit of an outlet and someone to talk to. Were you offered a therapist um, earlier than that? I did. That seems like a like a almost ambulance at the bottom of the cliff Correct. situation. I did, but I just didn't resonate with them. I just didn't want to talk. I was just locked up. Yeah. In a closed okay. closet. I just didn't want to. I had like getting diagnosed. I had to collapse at the sink before I could get treatment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on the edge. <laughs> I had my foot. You know. Before how, I could how, where, where, how high? Four stories up, I was on the fourth story. Okay, so right. Yeah, would have done. 15 metres, maybe. Jeez, what an awful way to go. Yeah. I, it's, it's tough to think about now, and I think, holy heck, what were you thinking? Was it just to – was it you, – you, I mean, you didn't want to die. Did you just want to escape the pain? Is that what it was? I just wanted to escape the pain in my mind because I didn't know how to control it. I wanted to escape the physical pain, and I didn't think there was a life ahead of me. I couldn't see it. I was so blind because I was focused on this pain that I was in right now. I was just blind. I was like in this closed closet, and I hated being in isolation. I hated mm. being sick. Mm. I hated having cancer. And I perceived myself as this weak, loser, pathetic man that had no control of his life. I really did. And it was silly. It was just Really? Silly. Were, you, were you, like, embarrassed? I was. I was. Yeah, that, that is so fucked up. Mm-hmm. And from, with the benefit of hindsight now from where you are now, you can, you can see that, can't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just a silly mindset that I had. It was ridiculous because I thought I was a man. I could control everything, but it wasn't until I got real help where I managed to talk to someone and understand that this was okay, that these thoughts are normal, that I finally got out of that dark hole. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, 
from that, it was a real pivotal point. I got help, and he basically told me, it's not you, Josh Coleman, that wants to die. It's just the pain in the situation. From episode 26, former All Black captain Kieran Reid. Did you want to talk about your 34th birthday? <laughs> 34th birthday? Oh, yeah. Shittest birthday ever. Yeah, you know, like, um, yeah, semi-final, 2019. So, oh, man. Yeah, so this was, um, yeah, the Rugby World Cup semi-final. England England beat the All Blacks in 19-7. I feel like, um, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but because you've won two World Cups, I suppose losing one, is easier to take? No, nah, nah it's not really. <laughs> no, nah, I think because what I talked about too around the captaincy, you know, like this, you know, you wanted to do it for the team, but then also you've got all this responsibility as yourself and I wanted to, you know, prove that I was, I was um, capable of doing it as a leader. Mm. Um, and then so you put in so much effort and work um, and then it doesn't come off and, you know, my birthday was irrelevant like at that point, you know, when you <laughs> – a 34th birthday is irrelevant anyway. Yeah, You're not yeah. going to have a party or anything for that or, you know, you don't get presents anymore. So, or, Winning or a World Cup so, semi would have been a nice birthday present. It would have been nice, yeah. It would have been nice, um, you know, but what put it in perspective, I guess. And that was a, that was probably the hardest um, time on a rugby field for me in the post-set game, um, having to show leadership, um, having to bring the team in, Show leadership like after the loss. Yeah, know? after the loss. Right, you like, know, like, like putting on a brave face. Is yeah, that kind of- yeah. Like just and not just a brave face though. Like showing that it's genuinely hurting yeah. to the team, but also saying to to my boys, you know, who that hey, we're an all black team. That you know, if we um, win gracefully, we have to be able to lose gracefully here. So let's put our heads up and let's pay respect to England and um, and show everyone that you know we'll pay respect to the crowd and all that and. And then, I, you know, to those boys there, it's like, hey, boys, how, you know, you guys will get another chance here. So just remember this as well, um, this feeling. Um, and so, and not downgrading what it was because, man, it, it was a lot of tears and stuff in the shed after yeah. the game, but just being able to keep it together and, and do that was, was what was required, you know. Um, and then because it was my birthday, um, Get back to the um, back to the room, and um, you know, my wife dropped off into the hotel. You know, like cards from the kids and stuff. So, um, it was you know, in some way, it's so hard to um, uh, you know, keep you know his perspective of things. And it was a, a real tough couple of days, um, knowing you know what had happened around the rugby. Um, but then it was. It was looking back now. I think it was a pretty pivotal moment potentially in uh, in New Zealand psyche around loss and around how to, um, you know, look after people and how to be vulnerable and how to, yeah. you know, yeah. the public around, you know, knowing that hey they've put in this effort and and what have you, and then you know what will be will be in, in terms of results, and you can't always get the positive one, can you? So. I feel like New Zealand showed a bit of maturity, and I wonder if that's because um, we we had one 2011 and 2015. I, I remember, I can't remember which one it was, but in the maybe the 90s or the early 2000s, like John Hart got back from a World Cup and was spat on at yeah, the races. Yeah. It's disgraceful. Yeah, horrible, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's what terrible. it was. And potentially it was, you know, that would won two in a row um, before that. So, But then, 
I, I hope New Zealand has learnt. Mm. You know, and it's like yeah, you're not going to win every every game. Yes, we want it. We go out there to win, and you give yourself a chance to win. And um, but it, it is a point where it is a it's a game, and it's yeah. awesome. And and as an All Black man, you, you'd rather the um, expectation was that we win. Mm. Man, I'd hate to be in a team where the the fans. You know, you to win. It'd be, <laughs> like the Warriors. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's just like it'd be so it'd be demoralising, I guess, yeah. in some ways. So, um, yeah, that's that's what makes it who we are, you know. Um, yeah. But there's, you know, it's a great thing about sport. So, um, but yeah, it was a it was a tough week, um, but being able to then back up and in some ways be able to play a final game for the All Blacks after that after that loss and. Um, Yes, was that your final yeah, final game? The um the the third fourth yeah with um Wales yeah Wales yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah finished that and actually genuinely be able to enjoy that game and, yeah um knowing it was my last and just go out there and, and have fun and, and remember things that happened and, um yeah with a, a few guys as well who who were retiring so yeah um, it was good um yeah you you talk about that that um that semi final game in the book and then how the, the the next week you have to like watch watch a video analysis of the game. Is that ne- is that necessary? That seems mm. like, that seems particularly cruel. Yeah, pretty cruel, eh? Steve Hansen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yes so and what, no. So, like, so, I think, so what so, day? What day's the game? The games? Games probably Saturday. Like Saturday. And then when are you watching the video replay? Probably Monday. Right. Right. Tuesday, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, we had a couple of days to to reflect, and you know, it wasn't a normal week for us that week um, because of you know what. To process all the things we had to, but I think what Steve and, and myself was, it, it wasn't about us who were leaving. It was about the twenty odd guys or more who were going to still be there, right? You know, yeah. Okay. So it's like, okay, we have Makes to create, sense. we have to create an opportunity for some learning out of this for these guys, and so, um, you know, for them to take with them as they move forward, you know, and to whoever. Was going to be the next coach of Fozzie and stuff. So, um, I suppose you I mean you do learn more from your from your from your, your fuck ups than yeah. Your, well, you do, yeah. don't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah, you don't want to have to wait for you know a loss, but um, it's uh, it's how that's the best you know it's how you learn. From episode twenty seven, Kane Briscoe, Taranaki dairy farmer who has gained a huge following on social media with the Farm Fit movement. I distinctly remember saying to myself, you know, like I, I asked. I started blaming other people, um, like I blamed the bank for giving me the loan, I blamed my boss for giving me the job, and you know, I sort of thought to myself, if someone could just walk in and just take my cows off me, take the mortgage, and I'd just walk away with a suitcase full of clothes, I'd be happier, you know? Mm. And that was from the kid that grew up just, you know, not wanting to leave the farm to get to that point, I was like, damn, you know, this is yeah, this grim. is not good. Yeah, that's... But I suppose that, that um, not lashing out mentality, but that blame mentality, I blame. suppose that's human instinct, like it's... It is. Man, you see it everywhere. Yeah. And it wasn't yeah. actually until, um, you know, I probably got myself into a real shit place where it was just, it was so hard to get up in the morning and go and milk the cows. And it was only the fact, really, that um, probably two things I had, uh, had my kids... Um, that you know needed food on the table and the responsibility I felt towards my cows to look after them. Um, they were probably the only two things that kept me going at that point. Um, and it wasn't actually I, I came. I remember come. You know, I'd probably been in this place for you know, maybe a year of of just hating 
farming and, and hating my life and blaming other people. And when you were when you were like that, what were you like as um as a husband and a dad? Like, oh, pretty shit ass. Yeah, uh, were you? Yeah, I, for a while there. It's I funny, probably, you, you generally save your worst behaviour for those people that yeah, mean I the think, most to you. I think I wasn't a bad dad, but I, I think I definitely took it out on the wife. You know, I was yeah. just, you turn angry, like a lot of it came out as anger. Um, so you know, pretty short. I've got I've generally got a really long fuse. Um, but but probably turned quite short. Yeah, and, just and frustration, just, eh? Because I blamed her as well, like just for stupid shit. You know, I was just blaming everyone else except for myself. And it wasn't. I came home one day um, after about a year year of this, and I had a bitch and a moan at the wife about something about farming. You know, and and she turned around. At the time, I was absolutely ropeable with her, but she just said, "Well, you chose this." And I, it, oh, yeah, it hurt, it hurt, it hurt, it cut deep, I tell you. Um, and, you know, there were a few words were exchanged probably after that. From what I remember, it didn't, didn't go down well. But, um, you know, I, I went away and that probably sat with me for a, for a few weeks and I probably had to actually man up and, and, and accept that she was bloody right about yeah, that. And that, yeah. that was a, a really big turning point, I think, was to, that acceptance that, you know, I applied for the bank loan. I applied for the job. You know, I wanted to be here, and and it, I was exactly where I put myself. It's, it's hard because eh? I mean, things like the pay, the milk payout. There's things like that that are variables that are completely out of your control, and there's nothing you can do about that. But yeah, yeah this is um, um a Navy SEALs thing that I got from the David Goggins book. Yeah. Uh, it's like just owning as much shit as what you can. Yeah, and, it, and it's it, the best yeah. place to be. And like you can you can blame anyone you want, but it's not going to change the situation, <laughs> exactly. is it? Exactly. And and it was really that moment of acceptance that I I became quite self-aware of, of where I actually was in my life and, um, you know, the, the sort of mental state I was in and, and yeah, set about owning it, I guess, and, and it, it then became like, right, what am I going to do about it? From episode 28, Andrea Hansen, formerly known as Andrea Hewitt, New Zealand triathlon legend. Yeah, I actually haven't noticed my age. Yeah, and, sorry, <laughs> I put it up like three times in eight minutes. It was more coming back from pregnancy than yeah. it was just hard getting back into the pool and... Like doing the miles again, I'd never taken that much time off swimming before, probably in my life. That was the difficult part, but the running and the biking, I came back pretty strong. Did, did you did you give up all sort of forms of exercise, like in the late stages of the pregnancy or the early stages of your daughter's life? Like how much of a how much of a full break did you have? Because I had um, Camille Boscombe on the um, on the podcast a few weeks ago. She's heavily pregnant at the moment. Yeah. She's still trying to run like ten k's most days. No, I was, I was down to walking. Yeah, but I'm in the yeah. hill, so sometimes I was walking like two hours or so. So I was trying to keep keep out keep up what you can. Yeah, keep out there, but I wasn't doing any like I stopped doing you know gym work and yeah those things with the belly. Um, I actually broke my arm. It was how long was it? Was it two weeks? Three weeks before I gave birth, so I had a broken arm. It wasn't great. How did you do that? I I fell over. Um, in our old house, we had uh. I don't know, a little wall at the, out the back, and I kind of stepped up onto it and I lost my balance. That sounds like an old age injury. No, <laughs> no, I, lost, rails. no I lost rails my, around the house. I lost my balance. I had this big belly on me. <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, lucky, um, yeah, yeah, wow, lucky, lucky the baby was okay. Yeah, I fell on my arm, broke that. Um, and, yeah, and you were tough as well. That reminds me, of, there, was, um, there was one event you were in where you um, like broke your collarbone on the bike, and then you, 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 you still finished that leg of the triathlon, and then you ran. <laughs> yeah. when, when, when was that? In 2014, I was in Weihai in China. Uh, silly idea to do a long distance triathlon. So 
So it What's was, a long distance triathlon? It was on a time trial bike, and okay. that was my so my first and only. I've done two now. My first race, it was on a tri- time trial bike, so big long aero bars out the front, fast. Came into transition, and it's it's a little bit harder to control, and so I wasn't used to getting off first time jumping off the bike at speed, and I just put on the brakes, flipped over <laughs> the front, landed on my collarbone, and then I. I was coming. Through. No, it's not funny. <laughs> I know, it's, I'm just imagining that. Wait, what if? What if? What, okay, so you're on a time trial. You, you must have like um, because there, there's a well-known saying at all levels of sports that you don't do anything on race day that you haven't already done in training. You must have been on the bike before. Yeah, but when you get right. off the bike, when you're training, you stop. And right. You get off when you're in a race. You're doing it, everything at speed. So even jumping on the bike, mm-hmm. sometimes people fly over, slip. Slip off, sorry their, slip off their seat, you know. It's got this mental picture of how it happened. Okay, so was it like just a, a fracture or like a proper break? It was a proper break. I used to do a bit of cycling, and that, that happened to me during the Round Lake Taupo ride one year. I clipped someone else's wheel and fell off and broke my collarbone. It's the bloody, it's painful. So painful. <laughs> I know my husband did the same thing, and he, he was in pain too. <laughs> oh, you, you, I had to wear like button-up shirts because you can't lift your arm up. Just get things like getting in and out of the bath, things that you take for granted. So, how do you like? How do you complete the triathlon well, with, with that injury? Is, is it just adrenaline or what? Well, I sat down in transition, putting my shoes on. I, well, I didn't sit; I fell over because I couldn't couldn't feel, couldn't didn't, didn't have any strength in my arm. So I was sitting there. A coach came over to me and was like, "You're right," and I was like, "I'll try to run." I'm in third. I'll try to mm. try to get third. It was the world champs, right. the long distance. And so I started running. I remember the first thing was I tried to grab a water bottle. It just slipped through my hand. <sighs> Couldn't drink any water. Uh, just ran 20k and kept, kept my position. That was, I think, it was just coming third. That was. How long did the run take you? It was 20k. Yeah, and how long? Can you remember the it time? Was, I think I was 124. That's a good time. Do you, what would you normally do 20Ks on? Like, oh, do you think it was slower due to the collarbone? Oh, yeah, definitely. Been, eh? yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. yeah, because I was talking as well a lot of the time. Like I was telling people I was in pain. Like not pain, but I was telling people that I had something wrong with me. I didn't know it was my collarbone at that stage. Right, right. Oh, my God. Yeah, when it happened to me, it was the, the most demoralizing thing. So I get, I get taken to um, Taupo Hospital, and then they just give me like an ibuprofen and a sling and send me on my way because they can't. There's nothing they can really do about it. Oh, I got it plated. Oh, did you I, get plated? Yeah, I came home and the bone had like fallen, like completely broken, fallen down the side of my arm. And so I had to get it put back together. So they put seven pins in. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From episode 30, New Zealand rugby sevens legend, Tyler Nathan Wong. And get his friend, anyone that doesn't know, famous New Zealand photographer based in New York now. She used to do photos with babies, like in terracotta pots and... Sunflower pots. Sunflower pots. (laughs) And and you were were like, I'm guessing you don't remember anything of it. No, I do not. I think I was only about six six months months old. Six months old. And you were like dressed up as like a chubby little sparrow. I was. I was a cute little... Okay, so if you see me now, I mean, you wouldn't think it, but I was a chunky baby. (laughs) Oh, you're cute. You had that little baby fat going on. I was a chubby little sparrow. And then I was also a little sunflower as well in a pot with um, two other babies. And so it was actually crazy. My cousin sent my mum a photo. Um, It must have been last week or something like that. Um, And in Australia, they were talking to Anne Giddies, interviewing her. One of the Australian news things were interviewing. Her. and of the photo they were had in the background was me in the sunflower pot um, with these two other babies and so that's still going around and then my auntie was in America maybe five or so years ago she's walking around the streets and then yep inside a bookstore and there this big blow up picture of me in the sunflower uh, no the bird bath um, as a baby Amazing. I know like so it's still yeah pretty popular <laughs> so um so how did that come about you must have had conversations with your, your mum or dad about this um, how yeah, yeah. I, I don't actually 100% know how it came about. I think they were just like searching for babies and their mum was like, oh yeah, um, kind of applied and then got selected, took me along and boom, shot a few photos and now still going around and still quite popular. <laughs> yeah, and, and so your parents must have signed like a release form or something. Yeah, yeah. So did they, did they get paid any money at the time? Or? Um, I don't think they got paid any money, but they got to keep obviously right. the, the images themselves, yeah. But oh, n- so they're at home in the family house. <laughs> yeah, but now that you're um you're you're uh, you know an incredibly successful athlete in your own right, and you probably deal with lawyers and contracts and stuff. Yeah, they, they, yeah you must sort of think, fucking, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, where's the ongoing royalties for this shit? I know, right? How good would that have been? <laughs> yeah. Um, what an amazing thing to be part of, though, especially like given. You know, you, like you were just a tiny baby then, and now you've got, you know, you've 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 gone on to be one of the one of the world's greatest athletes. Really, yeah, it was pretty cool. So, like, Anne Goody's maybe a couple of oh, it must have been four or so years ago now. Um, did a like baby, where are you now type thing, and so I um yeah ended up like replying to that comment or that, and ended up emailing her, and then she was like, wow, look at like you know, and then posted on her social media and kind of just did that for a whole bunch of other babies too, just to see where they are now type thing. And I think that's when I was leading into the Rio 2016 Olympics there. That would have been about five years ago now. But yeah, it's yeah. just crazy just to see that, you know, this image of me is in the, you know, a bird bath in a sparrow outfit and a, <laughs> a sunflower in a, in, a, in a, you know, a pot is still going around. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> How many, what, you know, 28 years later almost. <laughs> yeah, 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 because you were like six months old yeah. at the time. It's, it's amazing that they managed to get, you, you look real placid by the way. As I must a, have been well fed. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you look well fed. (laughs) From episode 31, Sam Tanner, New Zealand's fastest 1500 metre runner. I'm of an age where I was born in the 1970s, so I remember the John Walker era. Yep. And then, and then there was a little bit of a gap after the amazing John Walker, and then Nick Willis came along and, and held that, that crown for a bloody, like Nick Willis has been running. Yeah, since then till now. Your, your entire life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and now it feels like, um, Literally my entire life, yeah, 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 yeah. Twenty he, years, <laughs> he has. It's incredible. Yeah, what's he done? He's done like sub four minute miles over twenty years. Yeah, <laughs> every year for twenty years. I read a big article online about this. I know. So, so to be able to get up and do that 
every year for 20 consecutive years. It's I, just mind-blowing. I, um, it's, it's crazy. I'm like, I'm fo- uh, this year will be my fifth year, and I'm like, oh, man, Nick, you're just making it hard for me to break that record. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, it's just so many miles. <laughs> my le- my, it's tiring me out thinking about it, you know? Like, But, yeah, he's incredible. And it's just longevity just shows how much of, you know, how – how much he loves running, to be honest. That, that's, that's really what it shows. Because a lot of guys, you know, they start to they start to taper or they start to get a little older, then like get an injury and they're like, oh, you know, maybe that's me done. And then they just mm. pull, pull the pin. But he's just like, no, I love running. I want to do it as long as I can. Yeah. And I'm like, that's so awesome. And, it, you know, him and Kelly Slater surfing, like Kelly Slater's 50 now and just, you know, won, what, 30 years apart as first and um, whatever pipe number, pipe Pipe masters, type. yeah, right, right. And I'm like those, you know, those sorts of athletes. That's you just goals. like, wow, the, you, you got to take your hat off to them. Yeah, and there's um another one as well, Cameron Brown, the uh, the Iron Man. Oh, he's totally. Uh, he's just turned fifty recently, and he's still cranking, cranking it, just <sighs> dominating. So, um, what's your relationship with Nick, Nick Willis like, or what was it like, and what is it? And like, he's obviously accepted now that you're the you're the upstart that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's kicking his ass. Oh, yeah. Was it weird in the beginning? Like, was there a, like a jealousy thing on his part, or nah, 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 never. Which is super cool. It could have totally been that. I'd never even thought about it. He made it so so natural. It was cool. Um, but, but I suppose you know when you're getting older as an athlete that that day's going to come. Yeah, I guess so, and especially because he was probably, oh, maybe like. 36 when mm. I first beat him. I beat him in an 800 the week after he smoked me in a 1500. But the bittersweet part about the 1500 was that he dragged me through to break his own New Zealand record. Right. <laughs> I, was like, wow. I was like, thanks, Nick. Um, but he was so stoked and he was so genuine about it. It was just amazing, you know. So I was just like, oh, this guy's so cool. He's such a cool mentor. And, you know, I'd looked up to him for, up to him for years but never had the opportunity to actually meet him. And so when he came to New Zealand, I met him and, um, you know, then I went to Belgium and – talked with oh, Steve Willis his brother was um with us and so I talked on the phone to Nick and and then uh Tokyo came around and or well, a couple more races I think I saw him at um we hung out chatted and you know watched a movie or something um but then Tokyo came around and I got to spend you know the, the most part of a month probably with him um and you know he got to give me some advice and give me some tricks and tips and uh yeah a bunch of stuff and so it was really what, sort cool. of, what sort of like tricks and tips? Like what can he Oh, here's a stitch up. One <laughs> <laughs> like, so, so I mean I totally should have known this. This was like real amateur on my yeah, part. Yeah. But um Nick post race t- tells me this one thing that if you're in a race and someone's on your shoulder and you want to get out of the box, you just put your hand on their hip, because it's not it's not illegal, you're not like pushing them. But you just put the hand on your hip uh, put your hand on their hip and just apply a little bit of pressure. <laughs> And they like, just like a fiend, like a fiend, but they just glide <laughs> outwards. And I tried it, and I'm like, "What the heck? This is awesome!" And but I tried it after the Olympics, and I'm like, "Nick, you should have told me this before the Olympics." I'm like, "That would have saved my, you know, campaign." But I was like, I wasn't grumpy. Um, yeah. But it was. I was like, <laughs> from episode 32, Sophie Devine, one of New Zealand's greatest ever cricketers. I remember actually talking to the coach before being like, I'm not sure whether I should go or not because I'm in such a shithead space. I'm scared that it might not be a good thing. And he's yeah. like, well, no, no, let's go. And, you know, it might help you, you know, being in a familiar. And I remember getting there and I was just like, what am I doing here? And I remember facing up and he was throwing, giving me throwdowns and things. And I just had tears down my eyes and I was sobbing and the teammate was in the other net being like, again, what's going on here? Did she say what's going on or no. could you tell she was just thinking what's going on? She's, I yeah. could just tell. Yeah. 
and and the coach as well was sort of like, oh, you know, you're not you're hitting it fine, and I was like, it's nothing fucking to do with how I'm hitting the ball. Like, I can't be here. And I remember he he threw one, and I I reckon I threw my bat, and I just walked out, tears streaming down my face, and I just walked I reckon a hundred meters down the other side of the field, and I just sat there and I cried for about thirty forty minutes. And I just think, I can't do this. I don't want to be here. This is the last place I want to be. And I remember breaking down. I remember getting back to the hotel and I pretty much, again, this sounds bizarre saying it now, but I literally hid under a desk and just cried. That's a breakdown. Massive breakdown. Yeah. And I remember yeah. calling the manager and being like, you need to come here. <clears throat> and that from that point, you know, um, it was all a little bit of a blur. Um I'd worked pretty closely with a psychologist that was with the team and with New Zealand cricket who had built a really good relationship with and having conversations with her. And, again, this shows how bizarre my headspace at the time. I was like, I can't leave. I've got to, I've got to play. I've just got to play. I'll, I'll be fine. Like, I've just got to keep going. It'll be fine. I, I need to play. I need to stand up for the team. I need to, you know, put on this, this brave act. I'll just keep playing. Yeah. And she was like, look, you can't. Mm. You actually can't. Like you're doing some serious damage by even thinking that you can. And it, it just couldn't. I just couldn't work it out in my head. I was like, "Well, no, no, I'll be fine. Like I'm just going to keep going, and this is what I've always done. It's cricket. I'll be fine, sort of thing." And I was really lucky. Um, had sort of the, the players' association reps come and have a chat to us, and was you know offered all the support and stuff. And then one of the assistant coaches of the team literally dragged me out of my room, got me in a car, and we just drove. I don't know how long it was for, but we just um, we just drove, um, and he just tried to distract me. And mm. by the end of that car ride, um, the decision was made that I wasn't going to play the next day. I think um, I don't actually know what they told the media or whatever else, but I, I wasn't available. And obviously, all the girls are really concerned, but they sort of gave me that space. Um, Again, I still didn't want to leave. Even the next 24, 48 hours, I didn't want to leave because I felt like I was abandoning the girls. Leading the team, I was yeah, leading the team the down. Captain, right? I was the captain. I was like, captains can't do this. And, you know, this is almost a bit embarrassing in a sense that I feel like I'm giving up. Um, so I was adamant <laughs> to the rest of the support staff that I was like, no, I want to stay with the group. Like, it might get better. I might be okay. And we had a couple of days in between. We went up to, to Mount Monganui for the next game and again it was really slow process small steps and they're like right well let's let's just take you to the training ground let's just see how you go again literally I put on my cricket spikes broke out in tears it was just really scary I think because what was it did you just lose your confidence everything and I was in such a deep hole and I mean I've, I've, I've had depression before and this was certainly um, I felt in the pits of it I was seriously in a dark space and I think it was so scary for me because cricket and sport in general has always been such an important part yeah, of my life. Yeah, it's a cornerstone. Yeah, and that's what I do and I've always felt so comfortable. Mm. But to then have that environment, that space feel so threatening and so um, intimidating and that I can't yeah. even be there, it's like, well, what do I do now? And that's the, the real overwhelming feeling I had. I was like, well, what do I do now? I I don't know what else to do. If I'm not playing cricket, I'm not playing – I don't know what to do. And that's why I think I was scared of leaving that environment. As, as in it sort of defines you? Or a little bit, such I think. A, or because it's such a, such a big part of your life. Such a big part of my life. Yeah, and because yeah. I'd never really experienced anything else 
apart from playing sport, and that's why I think I didn't want to leave partly, was because well, I don't know what I'm going to mm. do. What do I do if I'm not training or yeah. playing and things like that? And, again, it took a, a lot of convincing for me to leave <laughs> the mm. environment. Is this, is this when, because uh, this was quite well documented, you had like a two-month Mental health break. Is this was this the beginning of that? Mm, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, and you, you, yeah, you, I've read some interviews with you, and you talk about how good the coach was, and you treated it like no different to how you treat a physical injury, yeah. which is absolutely the right way to handle it. Oh, massively, yeah. and I mean, I certainly think around that time as well. I mean, I think about the Olympics and Simone Biles and what she was going yeah, through as yeah. well, and it's certainly become a lot more public. Naomi Osaka as yeah, well the with tennis. The tennis. Yep. Um, and it was, I think, the support I had made such a big difference. I think about some of the people that aren't so lucky that mm. don't have that sort of support around them. And like I said, I work really closely with the psych and being able to, to get back on medication and things like that has certainly helped me on that journey out of it. But it was just shit. It was really scary. It was, um, it did. It took a bit of time to, to come right. And again, the great thing with the support I had from New Zealand Cricket and the Players Association was there's no timeline here. Like if this takes five years, it takes five, if it takes five months, whatever, It's there's no pressure on you to come back. And, again, that was a scary thing because it's like, well, I'm not ready to give up, but I'm also scared of what, hap- what if this happens again? Like what if I get mm. into the middle and I break down and I, you know, what happens? And, and was part of you worried, because obviously you know you're a, ver- you're a very talented cricketer, but was part of you worried that, that you know, they may not have you as captain again because they're scared you won't be tough enough? Or Yeah, yep. yeah. and that was certainly on my mind as well was – I'm supposed to be the captain. You're supposed to be the leader. You're supposed mm. to, in my sense, my you know, you're supposed to be able to hack it. Yeah, you're supposed to be a role model and a leader. And again, I felt embarrassed that shit. Maybe I can't do this. Maybe I'm not cut out for it. Maybe it's not for me. But certainly, coming through the other side of it, I think it's given me an incredibly valuable perspective. Oh, hundred percent. Like make you a better captain. Oh, it's made me a better person. Has it? Yeah. How so? I think that empathy. I think if you would have asked me a couple of years ago about depression and things like that, I would have been like, oh, I don't really get it. Like, I don't understand. How can you be sad or how can you not want to, <laughs> how can you not want to get out of bed? Like, I don't really yeah, get it. Yeah. Whereas now I'm like, fuck, I can understand if you don't brush your teeth for two weeks. Mm. I get it. I understand that. From episode 33, my old friend and Auckland mayoral candidate, Leo Malloy. I did a nightclub called Cardiac and spend a ridiculous amount of money thinking that I could do anything. So I did Danny Doolan's first, and I thought, wow, what can't I do? I did student bars, and they worked. I did a restaurant that worked. I did Danny Doolan's that worked, and I thought, I could just do anything. So I um, I tried to be clever and do the best nightclub ever, you know, full of beautiful marble and toilets where you could do lines of shit in. And, and, you know. Oh, you could. I remember the toilets there. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, they, they were completely individual, and they even had a little shelf they, at the back. They had bonking rails where you right. could you know, leg each other up and fiddle with each other and <laughs> but, do whatever you do. But, but as but, someone who's making their money from alcohol, why is it a good idea to have, to have well, line-friendly it, it, toilets? I wish I'd had you as my business manager because <laughs> I don't know why, but I suddenly thought that the key to it was just to show everyone that you could do anything. And I took. I mean, I'm not a very big drinker, as you know. We've been sitting here for half an hour now, and I'm halfway through my first beer. And I'll probably have you have been chatting a lot. So. Two or three. <laughs> this has made me being normal. You know that. But when we did cardiac, so I had this vision that I could create something absolutely amazing that would change the town forever. But I'd never gone, did any research on nightclubs. I've been to Vegas and looked at all their nightclubs, and they had pretty good lighting. They had shit technology with cameras and stuff. But it was kind of more about the DJ and pump, 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 and, and not, not my music scene at all. As you know, I'm still doing sort of palming type music, a bit of Johnny Cash, a bit of Neil Diamond. A wagon wheel. 
Wagon wheel, wheel for life. Reggie McCall, <laughs> wagon wheel. But, you know, I still, I like my um, Motown and soul on a Sunday and stuff, mm. but my, my music roots are fairly um, 70s, 80s. So, and I don't know what I, what I was thinking up there, but um, it didn't work from day one. The first How week, long did it take bef- before you realised, oh, shit, uh, we're one, in trouble here? One weekend. Really? On the first weekend, I watched the cameras from home because, as you know, I don't go out at night. I'm always home early. And I watched the cameras and I rang, I had two junior partners and I rang them and said, we've made it big time, boys. I said, this is a phenomena. So um, when I went to look at the till data and I thought, no, that must be a mistake. Clearly they haven't um, cashed it off correctly. So I mm. went back and checked again and it was accurate. I knew then they, they didn't come to spend money on alcohol. Well, so then how long did it remain open for? Like how long, how long do you um, hemorrhage money before, and try and fix it before you Well, like- I, I put another million in, I know that. Oh. And I kept putting it in. It was like a bleeding artery. And you keep thinking, will it ever turn around? And a couple of people who knew I was in a bit of bother reached out and tried to help me. But um, no, it, was, it was just a hopeless case. It was like a... It's like a soldier laying in the battlefield and you're bleeding from every orifice and at the end of the day your mates just turn and walk away. So yeah. Jeez, so matter when you bleed out. So so did you end up bankrupt after that? Yes, I did. Yeah. So um, I lost everything. I had a mate give me a car, $8,000 Toyota Ipsum. We called it the Lizard. It was a green car. <laughs> 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 oh, my God. Uh, that's good for humiliation. I actually sought the advice of a very wealthy man in town when it happened and I said, how do you see this unfolding from here? He said, Auckland has got one redeeming feature he said they will forgive you but they want to see humility he said you've got to drive a really bad car around and you've got to work and you, people need to see you um taking your punishment like eat a bag of dicks they will forgive you and, yeah. and sure enough that's what i did and they did it mm. didn't take very long a very 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 good man there's no chance he'll listen to this podcast unless someone refers him to it but a chap called mark wyborn who's been a friend for life i'd met him not long before and he came to me in the street one day and he said um Auckland needs you Big time, what do you need to get started again? And I said, well, I'm in a bit of bother if you haven't read The Herald. Mm. He said, that wasn't mm. the answer to the question. He said, I want to know what you need to get started again. And I said, I probably need an opportunity. He said, have you got one in mind? I said, well, I know a little sushi shop that's for sale, and if I could buy that, it might cost me this much to fix it, and I'll be away again. And he said, where do I send the money to? And I said, where do I sign? He said, you don't sign. You just shake my hand and we do business. So mm. he sent 165000 to my lawyers that day and I bought the bar that became Cowboys. Yeah, right, which is actually not far from where we're this, sitting right now. in this building. So yeah. I ended up owning two titles there. Uh, so that was an interesting experience because that got me back on my feet and I learned my lesson. I never, ever made another mistake. I was just so focused. And um, within about a year of opening that, I did it all while I was bankrupt and under the, the model was given to me by the official assignee. They said, if you do it all this way here... Will support you 100%. And the deal was. Official like, Assidy, is that a bankruptcy? Official Assidy is the government agency that manages bankruptcy. Okay. So they said to me, like, this is how you're going to do it. This is exactly what you're going to do. And we'll support you 100%. So I did exactly what they told me. And um, I got it going and it was absolutely flying. And about a year after I opened it, um, it kind of changed Auckland, um, in case you don't remember. It was a very significant player in the hospital mm. sector. Yeah, and very a, small. Very small bar as well. 60 square metres. Yeah. So anyway, the bank ran me up and they said, why don't you buy that building? And it was the ANZ, who I've been with for 40 years or 45 years now. And I said, um, do you not read the Herald? I'm bankrupt. They said, we don't care. We watch your daily receipts. We, we know how much money you're making, so go and buy the building. So I bought that title, and then I bought the one next door, and then – um, Ingrid and I, or Ingrid, to give her credit, this was all her initiative, she bought a half acre out in Titarangi and we subdivided that and built a new house. And before you know it, we're back on our feet. And I went to Mark Wybon. I said, Mark, um, you know, you've done me the greatest favour of all time. You are my knight in shining armour, but now it's time to pay you back. And he wouldn't take the money. The 165? So wouldn't take it back. So I. What, do you mean, what was in it for him? He didn't even want his initial investment I think, back? I think because they were so strong in the Viaduct, Viaduct Harbour Holdings, and I'm still a, Oh, okay. A big, I think right. that he thought, you know what? 
Leo has, this is what I'm thinking, he's never told me this, but this is what I'm thinking. He thought that, he said, I remember he said clearly, Auckland needs you. We need people like you in Auckland. So um, he probably thought that I had something to offer. I don't know whether he thought it was Viaduct-centric or whether it was just Auckland in general. But I'd like to think that I helped uh, enhance the footprint of the Viaduct, the impression the Viaduct's made from in, in hospitality. But anyway, I want to tell you the story about Mark Wyborn. So I kept going back to him and saying, I have to give you this money back because by that stage, I was saving hard and we'd already managed to do something in Queenstown or we're about to do something in Queenstown. And yeah, another Cowboys. We were rapidly expanding yeah, and things yeah. were going so well for us and he wouldn't take the money back. And So I had to trick him. So I took him over the road over here to that industry's end, the Japanese place. And I took an envelope, and this is going so far back, we still had checks. I haven't seen a check for a long, long time. Yeah. And I wrote a check out for the full amount, and I think I had a wee bit of interest, but not much, just to barely cover the whatever it was appropriate. And I said to him, please take this. It's just a letter. It's just a thank you, but I don't want you to open it until I leave. <laughs> so as I left, he opened it, and he called out to me, come back here. So I went back, and he said, I'll take it, but he said, I want you to know one thing. And I said, what's that, Mark? He said, I've done what I did for you at least a dozen, maybe 15 times. He said, I went through it too in 87 after the crash. Yeah, he said, right. But he didn't go. He said, the banks called him in and said, we could roll you if we wanted to, but we won't. There's enough blood on the streets already. So he said, you're only the second person ever to pay me back. But he said, most people don't, not only don't pay me back, they never even acknowledge the fact that I gave them the money, which I thought was bloody interesting. Cause and incredibly rude. Yeah, that's remarkable. Well, see, this is my Irish Catholic values, though, you know. Yeah. I mean, when mum brought us up with such staunch values and it goes to your bone, quite often you think to yourself now, um, what would I do? Oh, no, better still, what would mum do? You know, what would mum say? Mum had sayings, you know, never leave food on the table. Poor as we are, don't waste food. Um, mum would say things along the lines of... Um, what was it? Oh, judge a society by how you treat your most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's just simple stuff, but it, yeah. they're, they're good mantras by which you should probably live your life. And mm. I'd like to think that I haven't departed too far from those value systems. From episode 34, Reese Darby. What are you doing on a running themed podcast? Well, I was thinking about that. <laughs> uh, and of course, I do run. Uh, so it's a good way to keep fit. So I think I do fit in. Yeah, you do? You yeah, do run? Yeah, I do run. Yep. Always been a runner. Hence the massive calf muscles. Look at those. Oh, shit. They are sizable. They, um, you, you are looking buff at the moment. Oh, come on. You, no, I mean, you, do you work out? You go to the gym? I, I, I don't go to the gym, but I do, I do work out. I have a Peloton, uh, you know, the bike oh, the system. Oh, uh, yeah. Big in America. I don't even know if you can get them here. But it's basically an exercise bike uh, with with live video feeds to uh, hilarious people teaching you and uh, <laughs> classes and whatnot. I generally just use the uh, the other system, which is where you've just you know you're on a on a video road and you can be at these different places and on the globe. And I listen to my own music, and really it's just like escapism for forty five minutes or whatever I do on it. Um, so that's fun, and that just keeps me. In shape, and mm. then I also uh, run as well. I enjoy jogging, uh, so I'll do that once or twice a week as well if I can. Yeah, because you're in, you're in New Zealand a bit, but you're also in, in LA. So you just run? Do you run in the um, in the the hills around yeah. LA, or just so from I, home? I do. I, I have a little home circuit around the neighbourhood, but also I do uh, a track up into the hills, which is awesome. Yeah. yeah. And um, there, there's another couple of links um, between you and running that I, that I found. First of all, um, uh, you were in a video recently with Prince Harry. Oh, you, yes. You share with him a fun fact about running, which which is true. Roger Tui, I have him in my sights. And by my sights, I mean my eyesights. Oh, okay, he's, God, he's fast. I'm going in, over, out. Oh. Uh, hi. Are you okay? Yeah, I, I haven't run in a while. Clearly. Oh. <laughs> you know, we actually invented jogging. 
The Australians? No, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Oh, terribly sorry. I know you guys hate that. Kia ora. Mm, I thought that was odd. I love that fact. And right. It doesn't make any sense, but... Uh, <laughs> no, because... <laughs> so, uh, did you, when you read the script, did you think it was a joke? Well, no, because it's my script. Oh, okay. I wrote it. Thank okay. you, Don. <laughs> Come on, I write my own stuff, guys. Uh, no, I bet it was one of the few occasions that I did, I did, uh, did write that one. And yeah, I've always liked that little uh, that little gem of a nugget, which is that you know New Zealand invented jogging. Yeah, which which does seem weird because it's like a country claiming they invented walking. Exactly. Yeah. It's which, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's... there was running, and then there was walking, and but no one knew the in, in, in the middle bit until they saw some Kiwi like struggling along. <laughs> hey, what do you call that pace? <laughs> uh, jogging. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so how did that come about? The, um, the, the Harry the, one. Yeah, the Prince Harry thing. Yeah. Uh, well, um, my friend Leon, who works for Augusto uh, here in New Zealand, uh, they had the contract to uh, create this uh, piece of media with uh, Harry. And uh, so I got the call, obviously, good mate. Hey, hey, could you jump in on this bandwagon? Uh, get to meet Harry, absolutely. You know, and of course, I looked into what it was all about. And uh, it was sustainability and, uh, you know, uh, which is very important tourists uh, getting rated themselves rather than the place mm. that they're touring, which I think is a great idea because it, it, uh, the onus is on us to be good people. And that's yeah. the number one thing, I think, in the world that's going to take us through into a better future. Mm. Yeah, for anyone that, that hasn't seen it, it's, um, it's no doubt on YouTube where it'll live forever. But yeah. in, in a nutshell, um, Harry's out, out jogging and you're basically stalking him, hiding in the bush. And yeah. you, you hit him up with a um, fruit burst wrapper that he left on a beach in New Zealand many years earlier. That's right. It's a, yeah. great, it's a great concept. I yeah. love it. Thank you. And then, yeah, so we, we kind of did that. Um, and... No idea how his uh, his movement has has progressed from that point, but um, I was just happy to do a creative piece of art with the guy, and uh, that promotes something that I think, uh, yeah, is important. And how does something like that work? Like, how much how much time do you do you have with him? Uh, does he does mm. he just turn up and do the thing? And uh, you, you know what I mean? Is there much yeah, downtime? Was, much chatting? It was, a, it was a special event for sure. We were we filmed at a uh, non disclosed location. Uh, well, you can disclose it now. <laughs> no, I still can't. I still can't. We had to sign a uh, NDA. Why is it where he where he exercises? Pretty much, off, right? Yeah, right. like, so it's a special place, and, uh, and then of course the scripts had to go back and forth, and he had to be happy with what was going on. He was happy to work with me. That was one of the big draw cards. Another reason I think I got the job was because you know he he was a fan of my comedy. Hopefully, still is now that he's part of it, and uh, and so. Uh, so that came into fruition. Uh, it took took a while, actually. Um, and then, yeah, we had to have a very small unit of people that were allowed on this particular property. And, yeah, it was, it was one of those events that I say yes to because, you know, it's um, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, perhaps. Absolutely it is. Absolutely. Like yeah. Couple of couple of gingers together doing that. Actually, you're yeah. are you blonde now? Have you I'm dyed your skin now? Yeah, my ginger days are done. Because <laughs> I'm sick of that nickname. <laughs> From episode thirty-five, Matthew Ridge. Yeah, I, I I had a broken heart at the time, right? And I was riding through the um through the viaduct on my BMX. Shirtless. No, I don't think it was. Shirtless. <laughs> it was about five thirty or six o'clock. You know, I was on a Friday night. I was riding yeah. through. And I was just going past you. I was like just scouting around. You know, as you do. 
and um, I saw these two girls walking towards me, and and I saw I saw one was blonde and one was dark hair. I, I, I saw, and saw Chloe. I was like, "Oh my god, who's that?" And I just sort of rode right up to her, and, and um, <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, she was like, she was like, uh, I was like, oh. And I, I just, I pretty much just followed around all night, you know, like it was embarrassing. And, um, and her mate came up to me right at the end of the night and she said, look, Matthew, I know who you are, but Chloe's got no clue and she's not interested. And I was like, oh, listen. Were well, you pulling out all the stops? Like it was being yeah, just yeah, super, I, super charming. Yeah, yeah, I was falling around. I was falling around. I, I'm mm. riding around on a BMX, you know, but I'm an old dude. And she said, oh, that's right. The first thing she said to me, she goes, oh, I have how come you're riding your son's bike? Because, <laughs> you know, she, she was only 24 and I would have been close to, I think, 40 at the time. And um, she, uh, anyway, uh, and her friend said, you know, she's not interested. And I said, oh, look, she, she hasn't seen me dance yet. And so I, I went up to her and I said, I said, oh, look, Chloe, I said, look, I, I'm going to leave you alone. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. I can't remember where we were, what club was in Fort Lane. I said, look, but can, can I just, let's just have a little dance. And we're on the dance floor. I said, look, just give me your number and I'll leave you alone. And she gave me a number. The next day I rang it. And I thought, oh, she, she would have thought about it and, you know, like she should have found, found out who I am. And she said, oh, I'll be sweet. Oh, she'll, I'll be able to go on a, on a date with her because I want to take her out for dinner. And I rang her and she, and she was just cold. Like it was like, mm. I was like, oh, hey, hey, it's Matthew, blah, blah, blah. And she just literally asked me. And then I... I got off the phone. I was like, oh, that didn't go too well. And then she sent me a text. She said, hey, Matthew, it's completely, it was nice meeting you last time, but I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. You know, just leave me alone. And I was like, oh, shit. So that really just rocked me back a bit for like three or four weeks. Anyway, I didn't run into her again for about four years. And I was on a beach in, um, over at uh, in Takapuna. And I saw this girl. I was like, oh, my God, who's that? You didn't recognise her? I didn't recognise her. Yeah, yeah, No, right, no, I was right. like, oh, fuck, who's that? You know, I was, and, and she was with a bunch of friends of mine. So I sort of semi sort of said to them, oh, hey, look, you know, like, I'm going to SPQR tonight, do you want to come along? You know, blah, 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 thinking that, you know, she might hear and might come along, you know? Because she was sort of looking at me through her glasses, and I, I could see her looking at me, and I was looking at her. Anyway. So the penny dropped for her. No, the penny dropped for her, but not for right, me. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so, so my mate... My mate rang me as I was heading home and he goes, Oh, mate, you didn't tell me you knew Chloe. I said, What? What are you talking about? She goes, Oh, she reckons you tried out, you asked her out a few years ago. I said, Oh, whatever, mate. I've never met this girl in my life and I'd completely forgotten about it. But anyway, so I ran into her at the, at the um, at, she did turn up to SPQR and, I, and I, I said, Hey, I've got a bone to pick with you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she said, Oh, you don't remember. And she told me, So I was like, Oh, you're the girl. And then from that, that, that was it. So we just we spent about three four months together, and then she went off to Dubai and we had a long distance relationship. And then we just decided, shit, you know, like she tried to forget me, I tried to forget her. Just didn't happen. And now she's trying to forget me again. She's 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 <laughs> shot off to France. She's been there for six weeks, and now I'm going to chase her again over there. So yeah, timing's a funny thing, eh? Why was she frosty on you the first time? Was she oh, seeing that's someone right. at the time? Yeah, or? she was. Okay. That's right. I, right. I, I, sorry, I'm like, that's right. So. So she, I, I call her and she's sitting in the car with her with her boyfriend. Oh fuck! Okay. And well, so my phone come my my name comes through on her phone and he's like, so why is Matthew Ridge calling? And, she, and she's like, 
oh, I don't know. Like, you know, we, we hadn't done anything or anything like that, but yeah, just the yeah, fact. And, yeah. so, and so she. Why she, are you giving your number to the guy? She, 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 yeah. she actually got engaged to that guy and went over to Cairns and was about to marry him and then just went, nah, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And she came back to New Zealand. And I was in New Zealand, and that's when we met at the beach. Yeah. So it was, it was meant to be. From episode 36, Chanel Harris-Tavita, 24-year-old rugby league player for the Warriors, who decided to turn his back on her life of professional sport and just follow his passions. You first came onto my radar through uh, your blog, which is um, simplelessons.com. You're a deep thinker, aren't you? Like, you, you, you actually don't sort of – would it be fair to say you sort of don't fit the mould of a um, professional contact sports person? I think that's fair to say. Yeah, so the simplelessons.com blog, it says on the opening page, this blog won't solve climate change and it might not end racism, but it could help make you a better person and that's a good start. So you, when did you start Simple Lessons and when did the idea came, come about? Yep, so in um, 2020, the NRL suspended the competition and um, we flew back from Australia straight back into lockdown, or the Kiwi boys anyway, from in the Warriors team. And um, we were in lockdown for two weeks and we had no idea when the comp was going to restart again. So um, I was sitting at home, I was getting so bored. They were sending me these workouts to do at home and that'd be done in about half an hour, but then you've got 23 and a half more hours to go in the day. And um, I don't know what made me do it, but I I got into journal writing. I liked writing out, um, I started writing out my thoughts and feelings, um, which is Weird. Like now so, that so, like, so how old are you at the time? You're like 21. I was about, yeah, I would have been 20 or 21. 21. At, at the time. Yeah. So where did the idea, did you see it on a YouTube clip or a TikTok? Where did the idea come from to start journaling? I don't know. I think I, I just opened Microsoft Word and I got. I just started writing. And then I thought after the first time I did it, I was like, I'll, I'll try and do this for 50 days. 50 days straight. Wow. What sort of things were you, were you writing? Was it just sort of like a stream of consciousness? You were just writing what was on the top of your mind? I was or writing you... anything. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like so how many how many sort of words? It changed. Like the, the first the first one would have been 100 words. It wasn't, right. it wasn't like too a paragraph, much. paragraph, yeah. A paragraph, yeah. Some days I'd write a few, sentence, few sentences and then some days I'd write like four paragraphs. Okay. It just depended, it depended on how I was feeling that day and – I'd write random stuff like what I'd have for breakfast and try certain things like I, I stopped drinking coffee for like a week and then I'd write out how that made me feel and swap coffee for green tea. I was just doing these little experiments because I was that bored, like I had that much time on my hands and I thought, lucky, I'm never going to get this amount of time to myself again, so I better not waste it. It's such a... Such a profound way of thinking. Like most of us just ate more salt and vinegar chips and <laughs> maybe drunk yeah. a bit more. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. I still had my fair, fair share of chips during that period. But yeah, it was a. It was sort of like a um, like life so fast. I feel like it, it goes so fast when you're you're just in the everyday motion of working and um, hanging out with mates and um, just doing whatever you do. And then and that was sort of like a step back for me like I just took a step back and looked at everything from the outside like help me look at the bigger picture it slowed down my thinking and yeah I, I I just found a new hobby for writing right and I've been doing it ever since see this is amazing I suppose but like being a professional athlete you're 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 in tune with your body like from from the neck down you're completely in tune mm. with everything that's going on but to be to be that in tune uh, with your mind as well especially at your age it's um it's it's fucking awesome bro <laughs> it's really cool yeah 
I mean, I'm envious. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lot older than you, and I'm, I'm still figuring shit out. Yeah. And uh, you've, you're doing this work, and you've got there at a very young age, which is cool. Yeah. Well, I never, like, people always ask me, like, have you, have you always been like that? And in school, I was just a normal into sports and get to every other subject, and I'm just dozing off. I'm sleeping. <laughs> like, I love I loved training. Before before school, I'd go and train with one of my mates at at the gym, and that was like the I'd get up at five o'clock and go and train with him, and that was my routine. But then I'd get to school, and and in class I'd, I'd just doze off because I I hadn't had enough sleep leading into the day. <laughs> You're exhausted from all I, the I'm training. I'm exhausted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that was the cycle for me. Like I'd, I'd go to school, sleep, and then go home. Or go and then go and train with whatever team I was playing with at the time. Go to sleep and then wake up at five o'clock to go to the gym with my mate. Right, and that was a cycle for a good two to three years. Yeah, I was never into writing or reading. Were you good at English though? Nah, no, no, nah. I was, I wasn't good at it, and that's why a lot of people were surprised that I wasn't good at it because it's something I really enjoy doing now. From episode 37, the first ever repeat guest on the Runners Only podcast, Brad Smaler, pro wakeboarder turned quadriplegic. Um, I just need to do what I can and make the best out of, out of the life I got. And, um, so that's kind of what the book's about, really, as well. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I'm, I reckon maybe 75, 80% of the way through it, I'm recording this on the assumption that most people listening to this probably haven't read it yet, and we want them to, so... Uh, I'm sort of torn. There's the things in the book, obviously, that I want to talk about, but also I don't want to give away too many, too many spoilers. But I, what I will say is that the first 290 pages of the book, 200. That, by the way, that's bigger than most normal books on it. So, yeah. first 290 pages. That's um, that's Brad Smaler pre-accident. Yeah, and so I really wanted to to give the full picture of what life was like. Oh, and you certainly um, did. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't, <laughs> didn't hold much back. <laughs> Um, and I thought that the was much important. Back. What did you hold back? Oh, I mean, that what ended up in the book is only half of what I initially wrote. So, uh, you know, the publishers have read all the uh, the unfiltered version, and it's um, yeah, mo- you know, we we kept it as raw as possible, and um, but we just kind of trimmed out the parts that weren't necessary, and kind of, you know, we've got enough. Um, talk of sex and things like that in there that oh every other mate flick open to any page and there's Brad and it's like oh probably this something. new girl yeah that, that was it you know it was just, I was a young you know young man in my late teens early 20s and you know traveling the world and I was single and I, I you know I tried to have some relationships and you know, tried long distance and it just didn't quite work and um, didn't feel like I was in a position to be able to like bring someone with me and so yeah, I was just living the single life and tried to be as um, authentic about that as possible and upfront with with the women that I was with and you know obviously there were one night stands and things like that but um, yeah it was just uh, that was just part of the life and I, I wanted to to really paint that picture as authentically as I can and give people the real full story before the injury happened so that then they can feel how far I fell you know and how how hard that hit me and. Uh, you know how much it affected me in in many different ways, and I kind of really dig into that um, through the the uh, last half of the book. 
Wow, you're still here. Good for you. Thank you very much for listening and making it all the way through this summer series. Sort of like a recap episode of the guests that we've had on the podcast this year. If you like what you hear, please um, give the show a rating if your podcast platform allows or write a review. Or if you don't do so already, please subscribe to the podcast or on Spotify, click that little bell button. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Appreciate you being here. Hope you're having a fabulous summer holiday. And we'll see you next week on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 